Eliminating the back row in education is not just a metaphor for James Kennisberg. When James, the founding CTO of 2U Inc., immigrated to America from the Soviet Union, he discovered technology could not only be a pathway to a career, but it could also be a conduit to scale anything that piqued his interests. On this episode of IT Visionaries, James discusses the journey that led him to 2U and the challenges of changing the online learning experience. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform. This podcast is created by the team at mission.org. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we have on the other line, James, what's going on? It's going well. How are you, Ian? I'm doing great. And we are excited to talk to you today about all things technology and education, a favorite topic of ours on the show. Um, and we're going to get into your background, what you're currently building at 2U, and much more. So first, how did you get started in technology in the first place? Well, um, I guess there's a a longer story and a shorter story. The longest story is all the way probably going back to 1987. I was still in Soviet Union at the time I immigrated when I was almost 15. And I used to, there was a new uh, club that opened up called Computer Club, and I would go there to mostly play games. At some point, I noticed they were also offering something that was called programming which was about double the money than games. So I thought it would be so much more fun. So I signed up for one and that was my first experience with programming. I wish I could tell you I fell in love back then, but I will tell you I went back to gaming. But when I arrived to the States, I do believe uh, my brother and I, uh, I have a younger brother, about six and a half years younger than me. We figured out that technology was our way to scale anything we were interested in, anything we were curious in. Uh, and it was also a way for us to make some money as immigrant kids. That was obviously one of the goals we had as well. And so very early in the beginning of uh, late 90s and towards Y2K, we, we took a lot of interest in tech and uh, sort of uh, understood that technology has this remarkable power of making whatever it is that you want to do at a scale that is basically exponential. To me, once that clicked, I just realized that is the language of the future and uh, kind of stuck around with it. What was it like when you came to America, you had kind of this background in technology that you knew is valuable, but was there kind of a challenge there, kind of figuring out what the next step was? Well, I didn't have that much of a background in technology, but I had enough to understand that technology wasn't the main course. The main course was figuring out what it is that we wanted to do using technology. Technology for us was sort of the fabric that brought it all together. And so that's where we have a whole bunch of uh, funny stories, whether it was uh, a failed dating site or, you know, my little brother selling sunglasses on on the Internet and becoming maybe top 10 uh, e-commerce retailers in sunglasses at that time. <clears throat> we tried everything and anything, learned a lot about digital marketing, learned a lot about programming, learned about a lot about stakeholders and, and that interaction 
And so when I was able, when I made my move into a real career as an adult in my early 20s, and I ended up on Wall Street, all of that really came together because I understood that whether it was big enough, like Thompson Financial, where I've spent a couple of years, or a small uh, moms and pops business that my brother and I would try to run out of our bedroom, at some scale, it worked in similar fashion. And scale obviously made it either more complicated or less. But the technology and the things that you had to do were very similar. And so it all kind of came together for me uh, when I started working for, you know, Georgeson and Thompson uh, around Wall Street, you know, again, stuck with it, learned a lot, and then couldn't stop just there. Uh, Finance wasn't really what I was as much interested in. And that was another lesson when I learned that I had to look for a passion first and technology second. That's, I guess, when I found education. You spent a number of years at the Princeton Review, which is a really interesting kind of place. We've actually, we were talking to someone who had spent a bunch of years as a technologist at MIT with a kind of similar sort of a thing where they were seeing so much information coming all of the time that you kind of have this extremely, you know, interesting kind of take on the world. And obviously, you know, it's a different thing and it's a different type of organization. But the reason why I say that is because Prince Review, you know, globally recognized brand. Tell me about kind of your experiences leveraging technology at that time. Prince Review is an interesting brand. I agree with you. I mean, if you think about it, Princeton Review uh, became that international global level brand name by tutoring students and helping them pass the test that they truly believed was evil, right? Like Princeton Review and College Board wasn't, weren't really getting along at the time. Yeah. Uh, Princeton Review felt like SAT was kind of a subpar test that didn't test anything. It was just a sort of a measuring stick that you can pick any measuring stick you want, but made a really large, as you said, globally recognized business on going against the thing that was sort of feeding the business. And it did, we didn't stop there. At the time, for example, in Princeton Review, I was able to build our first K-12 uh, learning management system that was helping students uh, you know, mostly three through eight pass uh, state standards and state tests. And so we were always in this like weird place of hacking education, if I may, whether it was creating adaptive algorithms to help students uh, constantly be on the edge and being able to uh, deliver constantly hard and tough questions, depending on your uh, level of knowledge, or, you know, developing systems that helped students. There were military kids that would at the end of the year, moved to another state and needed to learn using a different state standard than the state they were in and being able to, using technology, translate those things to create Pareto reports for students that they would be able to know which 20% of the skills will get them 80% of the gain. All of that really taught me at the Princeton Review how to look at education slightly differently. It's not just the thing people tell you they want to do, right? It's not just Going back to cliche of Henry Ford, if I would ask people what they want, they would say faster horses. It's not the obvious goal in front of you. There's many ways of getting to education. Education at that time uh, also started changing. We're talking, you know, early 2000, first decade of Y2K. That's when a lot of changes started happening in education technology as well. A lot of tools became mainstream and such. And this is really where everything started moving. So we had I really felt that in Princeton Review, when it came to education technology, we were pioneers at a very leading edge at the time. So when did the idea for To You first kind of start getting kicked around? It was uh, spring of 2008. 
we were having dinner somewhere and I believe someone at some point said online degrees are kind of subpar. They're bad. We realized similar things sort of happened, uh, at least for me, my perspective on this was when you know, e-commerce just started. Everyone would call it e-shopping and people would say crazy things like, I'd rather go to the store to buy it if it's the same price online or in store. Now, no one even remembers when the last time they used a word like e-shopping, if ever, for younger folks. And everyone just calls it shopping. And it would be crazy for someone to drive to the store to buy something for the same price that's available online. And if the past world was a lot of sort of moms and pops websites trying to make a name for themselves, we sort of, the world went back to Gap.com and Banana Republic. And obviously, there are some big ones like Amazon. But again, nothing online is small and great. Uh, internet requires scale. And uh, we feel like that was, that was our goal as well. How do we bring the knowledge of these universities that have been around for hundreds of years? I mean, think about it. Yale is 75 years older than America. So these are some of the oldest brands that have been doing education for a long time. Unfortunately, a lot of them are still doing education in a similar fashion that they've been doing for hundreds of years. Some have progressed a lot. But we understood that there was a room for us to bring our know-how of operations, technology, and technology-enabled services, which really means people using technology to help other people achieve their goals. We really understood that we can not only make it great or every bit as great as an on-campus program, we can create greater access to it and scale it where needed. That we can create this talent outside of urban areas where Schools like University of Southern California, Rasier School of Education, their mission statement was to change the face of urban education. Unfortunately, they were only you know, graduating a few dozen of students at a time. And when we partnered with them, we started graduating you know, potentially 10x more, if not 20x more in some cases. With that level of scale, you truly can start changing the face of urban education. It felt like a big goal. It felt like the right mission for us to do. We realized that a partnering with great universities was a necessity to keep education as great as it has been for hundreds of years. And we're there to create more access to it, to scale it, and to help our students and faculty get through it. So flash forward to today, you know, as CTO to you, what's kind of the scope of your responsibilities? What's your role? What does your team look like? And what are you working on? Well, uh, today with some acquisitions, we now have three main products, I would say. It's our degrees, uh, which are degrees, as I mentioned, with great universities. Uh, And these are MBAs. This is speech pathology, social work and such, nursing, you name it. Then we have boot camps where you go to a university. A lot of these are on campus, not online, actually. And where we partner with great universities such as Columbia, for example, for their fintech bootcamp where you learn things like, you know, derivatives, but also blockchain, but also Python, basics of data science and such. And so uh, we also have bootcamps with a variety of really great universities. And then the third product is short courses, where it's more about dealing with a specific gap. So for example, blockchain with Oxford, where you will only learn about cryptocurrency and blockchain through Oxford. It's about six to eight weeks. And these are what we call short courses. You have Short courses, they concentrate on upskilling. Boot camps kind of change your life. And, you know, degrees uh, probably, in, depending on where you are in a spectrum, are either advancing you in your career or potentially changing your career. 
So how much time do you spend working on like product versus working on like employee experience or, you know, or, or whatever you call kind of like the internal facing more like traditional IT functions? So here's my team. Uh, my team is, and the reason I mentioned the other businesses as well, is both vertically aligned as well as horizontally. And so if you think about it, even though we have sort of three vertical business lines, such as boot camps, short courses, and degrees, we are one company. Uh, so we're also running a product shop, and this is our sort of our product experience that goes horizontally and make sure UX experiences any sort of greenfield projects and such, that those unify the three different parallels. And then if you get down to the IT department, this is where you have data science. This is where you have things like DevOps, enterprise systems, whether it's Salesforce or Workday and things of that nature, uh, help desk and such. Obviously, there's a lot more, but I would say the three major groups that we are running here is engineering, product, data science, and everything IT related. Uh, but those things can range from you know, uh, cybersecurity and all the way to IT help desk and infrastructure and such. As you're looking at, you know, obviously the, the education landscape is changing extremely fast. You mentioned all the different kind of things that have been kind of popping up um, from the kind of the bootcamp perspective. Obviously, it's been a huge focus over the last decade. So you have kind of innovation swirling around you, but how do you look at innovation internally with folks on your team? Are you doing things like hackathons and stuff like that? Um, what does that look like? First, uh, one of the important projects that we did in the last couple of years was really to sit and think about the type of work that we have very hard because a company, you know, being a founding CTO, I was the only tech person for a while, but now we have 400 plus people in a team. And so obviously the scale of everything we do is huge as well. But the way we see our work, we sort of went back to Agile Manifesto and we realized that if you really read into it, there's three types of work that they would describe. And those works and that work, that sort of determination differs based on your certainty about what you're trying to do and sort of the approach and how, do you, and how you're going to approach to do it. And so, for example, something easy, Ian, like me installing Microsoft Word on your machine is a task that is pretty certain in what I'm trying to accomplish. And I'm pretty certain in how I'm going to accomplish it as well. Agile Manifesto would call that work simple. And then uh, as you have a little bit less certainty about the goal or the exact uh, destination where you're trying to go with your product, and you're sure a little bit less in your approach, that work is known as complicated work. And then the last but not least is when there are many ways of getting things done, when these are transformative projects in nature, you know, a good example would be maybe we are going to create new way of testing students. Well, that could mean anything. That could mean partnership with a third party. That could mean we'd be building our something ourselves. And there's probably a million permutations on how to build this right. And so there's not as much certainty, if any at all, and very little agreement on how we're going to do it. And that work is known as complex work. Obviously, nobody wants to work on anything that sounds like simple, complicated, and complex. So for the purpose of us using it, we named it RUN. So whether it is creation of accounts, fixing basic bugs, you know, installing Microsoft Word on Ian's machine, all of that is how we run the company. Then we have Grow Work, which is everything that we use to grow the current capabilities. Everyone is quick to build a new thing, but new things take a long time, a lot of investment, and a lot more risk. So 
if you want to continue growing your business, you try to invest in your current capabilities. Uh, last but not least is the complex part where you're not as certain about what you're trying to build and how you're going to build it is known as transformative work for us. And so we stick with this run, grow, and transform model. And that allowed us to both budget for each bucket and create a transform team that has very clear goals and budgets in transforming our organization uh, to the next level. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that uh, the run, grow, transform, you know, kind of framework. It works for us really well. Yeah, no, it seems like it. So how do you budget? Like, is there a percentage of budget that goes towards that? How do you kind of articulate that to senior leadership? Well, it probably sounds something like this. You go in and you say, look, this is run work. This is help desk. This is things that we must do for cybersecurity. These are bugs we have to fix. So this budget is something I need. It's not a question whether I need it or not. This is something where we start and we should make sure there's plenty of resources to get your run work done. Then you go with a grow perspective. And this is where, again, most grow projects we should do. If not must, we definitely should, right? Those could be compliance projects. Those could be currently the data is not very good, but we can do, we can clean it. You know, maybe the procedure is, the ETL is running for too long and we don't have to fix it today, but we have to fix it at some point. And so grow work, it's not, what we're doing as much, but when we're going to get it done. And then transform work is when, you know, the gloves come off because product managers and such in a room really have to back up their ideas, explain ROI, explain why they see the future. And then uh, I've read somewhere, as they say, a good idea is when two thirds of the people disagree with you. Because if most people agree with you, you're probably too late yeah. or it's too obvious. Then you're sort of working this two-thirds of getting them to maybe not agree with you, but allow you to take a risk and hedge your bets. So obviously, you know, founding the company uh, over a decade ago to now, the framework on, that it was built on, I'm sure, has changed multiple times. Like, are you, you know, not quite cloud-native here, but are you kind of hybrid cloud? What are multi-cloud? What, what are you working? So when we started to you... Um, I mentioned my brother in the beginning. Uh, my brother was very good at hardware. So I was lucky to never uh, learn how to take apart my machine or put it back together or install any parts in it. And so one of the things I like to always stay away from is hardware. Uh, when we just started TU, I hosted for less than a year in Canada. For some reason, it was cheap and it made sense because it was cold. But that was a really bad experience. And so several months later, we went all AWS uh, and never looked back. So, you know, when we started the company, I would say, Several months into it, uh, I was already standing on shoulders of giants like AWS and Salesforce. Skip forward 2014, we're going public. One of the analysts comes up and shushes in my ear and goes, dude, like now Salesforce and AWS is a no-brainer. But in 2008, that was pretty brave for you to take a company of this size on those. And honestly, he said it and I really appreciated the kind words. But to us, it was really a no-brainer because we were in a business of unleashing great universities and letting them what they do best. Yeah. And I always know I am pretty good at education technology and my team is probably the best team in education technology. But we don't know anything about EC2. I mean, we know enough and it, my engineers would probably be mad at me for saying it. But this is not where I need them to spend the time. So to me, it was never a question. I got the company on Salesforce before we had offices. That's crazy. I was shopping for vegetables and I called a different company. 
and they told me they would build on top of Salesforce. And I realized all the things I liked about them were Salesforce and everything I hated about them were the things they have added. And so I realized I'm just going to go buy Salesforce. Take At night, I took uh, advanced admin, something like that from Salesforce. And I kind of manned my own Salesforce for a while. They still make fun of me because I apparently I did a really bad job. <laughs> but, you know, it worked for a while. I still get bounced back sometimes from the code that still works though. So for all the haters that say it wasn't that great, it's still working after 12 years. <laughs> um, speaking of haters, um, was there, you know, parts of the journey that were very resistant to technology? You know, higher ed has not exactly been, uh, you know, a fountain of technology innovation. So I'm, I'm curious, like how much pushback you got in the early days, maybe you still get pushback with how your approach to technology and, and higher ed. I would say approaching technology in higher ed is hard. There's a lot of stakeholders. There's a lot of systems that are bought through, you know, all kinds of RFP processes and long-term contracts and, you know, homegrown student information systems and such. You know, not a lot of universities run like businesses. They don't necessarily value bleeding edge as much as they value taking on a little less risk in some cases. And so what we've learned to do is not to ask for things that were impossible. We walked into universities and first and foremost, we were able to stand on shoulders of those SaaS giants like AWS and Salesforce that allowed us sort of flexible frameworks to be able to accustom ourselves to specific university needs. Because universities, again, been around for hundreds of years and their processes are very different from one another. And so, you know, it's a lot of conversations, it's a lot of meetings, it's a lot of taking responsibility and saying things like, here's how we protect your data online. Think, think about the switch, right? If you go on campus and let's say there's a problem with your record, and let's say Ian registered for Psych 101, but for some reason the database says you dropped it or that you have a financial hold and you can't take it. If you know you already paid for the class, and it's probably some sort of a data error, you just go to class and you sit in class and you start your work, right? Nothing stops you. You go and you listen to lecture and you do your homework. And at some point you're going to fix the data issue. If you're online and there's a problem with your data, you can get into your classroom, right? Because there's no entitlement for Ian to go to Psych 101. So we obviously won't let you in. And so there's, as much as it, we try to mimic the systems because of the things we have to do online, and because of sort of high fidelity on data aspect of it, there's quite a bit that we, quite a bit of systems we have to build that are not visible to most people, as we call them internal systems. And I think you mentioned that in one of your questions to make all of that work. And often it's very specific to a university. And also on our, I believe on our 10th floor in our headquarters or on, on our 12th floor, it says, don't let the skeptics win. Oh, interesting. So when you say a university, do you mean like your custom building for a particular university or do you mean unique to universities in general? I'll give you an example. Like, uh, first of all, degree from degree is different. If you think about it, we have Master of Information and Data Sciences from UC Berkeley, and then we have Speech Pathology from NYU. As you can imagine, those are two very, very different disciplines to teach that require different things to get through admissions and get through school. Uh, so to some degree, I can't necessarily provide the same exact tool set to someone who's trying to become a nurse 
as I'm providing to someone who's looking to become a data scientist. As you can imagine, UC Berkeley's admissions process is probably very different from University of North Carolina's admissions process for MBA. And so some of those differences have to be captured and we do our best to create it as a software, as a service where it's flexible and that we are customizing less and configuring more. So I'm curious about the individual classes because, you know, like for example, my girlfriend's a PT school, they have to go to cadaver lab, you know, whatever, once a week, Mm -hmm. all the fun stuff. You know, how does 2U technology work for those type of courses where you have something that needs to be in person? Well, as I think I mentioned before, if you want to be a midwife, you're going to have to deliver, I think it's about 36 babies or something like that. It's a fair amount of babies you have to deliver. I don't know if it's 18, but it's, you know, a dozen or more of baby, real babies you have to deliver. And as you can imagine, if you're Georgetown, or if you're Simmons in Boston, you know, you probably have relationship with all nearby birthing centers and hospitals. So you can place your nurses as with perceptors at for clinical rotations. Now imagine doing this nationwide, where I can tell you as an example, one of our students who was in Alaska had to take a prop plane to her clinical rotations to deliver babies. Wow. Definitely wow. But if you think about on the other end of it, now there will be a midwife where there is no midwife a flight away. So the other, the harder it is for us to find whether it is clinical rotations or social work placements for the students, what we begin to realize that we are also creating access to that specific field in the area which didn't have it before. I'll give you another fun story. Uh, this is, uh, I would say, 2010 or, yeah, I believe it's 2010. Uh, we got our first Navy student uh, for an M- MBA program at UNC. We realized the firewall wasn't letting him hit our learning management system and hit our live classes because one of things that are so important for to you is our live classes. I mean, if you're a full-time student, you'll spend a dozen of hours on camera with other students and faculty. And so at that time, my only DevOps shop was a small shop out of Eastern Europe, where I'm from. And so now I had to sort of finagle this call between U.S. Navy NOC and like these three Russian guys, which had to dictate basically to Cloud Knock and figure out how to pierce a firewall uh, just for students using our programs, which they did. Thank God. I don't know how we convinced them to do that with the heavy Russian accents, but we did. And ever since, you know, we have one of the biggest military programs for social work in the country. And so, you know, those early successes seemed small at first, but at scale, they all were pretty great. Yeah. I mean, that's one of those great startup learning lessons, right, is the weirder the customer or the weirder the use case, the more you learn about the use case, right? So it's like those things are so important to think through every single, you know, thing. It's like, hey, well, what if, you know, as a, as a guy who spent a decade in the army, I can tell you a lot of websites that you're not allowed to go to <laughs> because of the firewall back then. That uh, that are seemingly innocuous. Dick's Sporting Goods uh, was notoriously uh, not allowed on, on the servers, even though it's just the domain. The amount of pictures, Ian, I've seen of, of guys sitting in full camo. I wish I could find it. Um, we had a picture of a guy like sitting on a roof in full camo because that was the best Wi-Fi taking MBA classes from Iraq. Like you get some, you know, 
those hangar planes. I got uh, somebody texted me a picture of a soldier uh, flying uh, somewhere in the Middle East uh, with his iPhone out taking one of my classes. You know, stuff like that, really. You begin to realize all those little moves really paid off and not just for you, but created access for a lot of people that didn't have access to great education before. What were some of the times as a founding CTO where you, especially being like the, the, the chief technologist for, like you said, quote, quite a bit of time where you kind of had the, you know, the, what is it? The Star Trek moment of like, I just can't do it, Captain. Like there's not, you, what you're asking me to do is not possible or what you're asking me to do is too difficult at this stage in time. And like, we just have to ship something that's not as good. Were there any of those kind of dark moments of the soul? I guess it depends on how you look at it. I'm sure there were plenty, you know, I've been in a conversation with, a, with one of those amazing universities where they wanted me to use their login. And I realized they didn't have forgot password feature on it. And when I pushed back and I said things like, look, we really at least need forgot password feature because, you know, people might forget their password. The answer was, well, they can go to security office and get a new password. And, you know, you have to be slow and you have to explain that obviously that won't work online and you have to push back. But sometimes you don't win. And obviously you can get into a fair amount of despair with it or you can sort of you know, I don't know if you know the A3 approach. It's sort of when you describe every problem in no more than 80 words. Um, it's supposed to fit on a page kind of thing. And then you just break the problem down and you find the best possible solution for it. I'm not going to tell you our solutions were best, but I can tell you there were best possible solutions for the budget that we had, the time that we had. Uh, but one thing that didn't change for us, we always kept, you know, the student in mind. And it takes a fair amount of passion and fearlessness to sort of take bad situations and make the best out of them. But when people ask me, what's your secret? How did you guys grow it to you so fast? You know, I can't point to any one specific thing, except for there was a lot of smart people doing a lot of hard work and not getting overly frazzled about anything. We had a problem. We figured out how to fix it. We tried with technology. If we can't fix it with tech, we fix it with people. I'm a big believer all the way back to Princeton Review that you can fix any problem in the world with two interns and an Excel sheet. <laughs> I like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that there's also part of it that's just kind of like a business model piece where the reason why SaaS is the way it is is because it compounds, right? So if you're continuing to improve the product, improve the customer experience, um, and deliver on the promises that you're making, um, yeah, there is no kind of magic bullet, right? It's just that incrementalism of, of getting, making the product 1% better every day uh, adds up in a huge way a uh, decade later. Right. It's hedging your bets in the right direction. It's not believing your own PR, right? It's not only believing in things that you are paying for others to believe. It's really listening to your data. I'll give you another good example. We've, we've been in this business for 12 years. We've basically invented OPM space as online program managers is what they call us, our business. And one would say our gut feeling should be pretty good about this business. And yet we've developed a tool in our data science department called auto tagging. And auto tagging basically takes all of our surveys and tells us how people feel about us using NLP and tells us how they feel about different parts of the website. How do they feel or trust technology and such? 
And then we convert that data into better roadmaps, into working with product managers to really understand what users want without necessarily asking them direct questions. We do try to doubt ourselves quite a bit. We do try to listen to data and be a data first company as well. And I think that has been paying off. I'll give you, I'll give you uh, one of those assumptions. When we just started the company, we assumed if we'll take something like NYU, right, online, everyone is going to come. It's going to be a great program and everyone's going to come. Guess what? We did some data uh, science analysis. For every mile we're away from the center of campus, we are paying more in total acquisition of the customer. So there's very strong geolocation bias in you choosing your school. Yeah. If you're born in New York, NYU means a lot to you. But probably if you're born and raised in Cali, you never think of NYU. And so, you know, a lot of those things that Wanda would say, why do you need to advertise locally when you're an online program? It almost seems like an oxymoron a little bit, right? Yeah. But in reality, the data says otherwise. And that's why I'm, I'm a big believer in listening to data and not always believing your own PR. How do you like view and vet technology? Like how do you do those kind of buyer build calculations? If you can buy it, if you can use cheap public software in general, you should use cheap public software because it's cheap and public kind of thing. So when we started to you, our first platform was built on Moodle. That made a lot of sense for it uh, at the time. There was plenty of uh, community that could help us. As an example, fast forward almost a dozen of years, we are finishing up and releasing uh, the final version of Atrio, which is our new version of our learning system. Uh, that is not based on Moodle, mostly proprietary, with exception of some things that we don't want to do ourselves. Uh, as an example, testing, where in Princeton Review, testing was very important because you know, it was a test prep company. At TU, testing is not as important. And so as an example, we partnered with a software known as Learnocity uh, and partnered with them so they can to integrate them deeply into our learning system so they can become our testing provider. Or another good example is, as I mentioned, our students spend a lot of time in very valuable, intimate, under 12 students' uh, live sessions with their professors. I'm not going to build my own live session software. Zoom is fantastic at what they do. And so we've integrated with Zoom. And again, it, to us, was a no-brainer. When, when Kubernetes just became a big thing, uh, we started running our own Kubernetes cluster. Today, we realized that we shouldn't be doing that, that we should move all of our Kubernetes to EKS and let Amazon Web Services deal with that. And so, you know, some things are changing with scale and as new software comes up. But in general, if you can buy it and do all the plumbing behind it yourself and do a fair, deep integration with all the proper entitlements, I think it's always a good call unless this is the thing that you do. So for us, since we are an education technology company, building our own learning system and making sure that the content that we spend so much time with, by the way, each of our courses will have more highly produced video content than entire season of Game of Thrones. And last year, we did almost 700 courses, right? So think about that math. And this is like against green screen. We fly professors to either Virginia or Hollywood, sort of Los Angeles. We have a studio out there. This is a full production. This is all well done. So if you're going to invest so much into high quality education, you have to make sure the platform is not just the platform. That the platform, to some degree, is the delivery system of that great content that works with it. That the workflows understand the content that's going to be going through them and not just agnostic learning management system and a bunch of agnostic content that you can buy in an open market. To you is an end-to-end -end closed system. 
because we want to make sure that students have absolutely the best and resilient and secure experience, as well as accessible. We are now, I don't know, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but something like in 10 million minutes of subtitled content, uh, you know, I did some math that if you would start watching our subtitled videos, you would never finish because we're subtitling them faster than you would be able to watch them. Wow, that's crazy. You know, we create audio descriptions for videos that are not just talking heads, where it's full production, where, for example, for social work, we'll produce videos where it's real cases played out by actors working with real social workers. And, you know, a lot of classes are based on that. If you're blind, you need audio descriptions to be there. We do that as well. And so to make sure we are accessible, to make sure that we are resilient, to make sure that we're producing a good flow for students and they're end-to-end feel like they're in the same platform that's helping them achieve their goal, whatever it is might be, was really important to us from the beginning. And so whether it is us building the software ourselves or integrating third-party tools, we make sure that they all become part of what we like to call as 2UOS, which is sort of our operating system. So sort of if you think about, you know, iOS, for us, we realize education requires an ecosystem as well. And so 2UOS, combination of technology and people using technology is what we call as 2UOS. For those folks who haven't checked it out, just go to 2U.com and click on approach and you can see what he's talking about with, with the 2UOS. But there's lots of information uh, available, you know, to people now in the course of a few clicks. And it's pretty incredible. Like you said, uh, just the transcription alone. I mean, the, and the, the massive value. What do you use for transcription? Um, uh, one of the blind students, we've invited them actually to uh, tour the company meeting uh, once. And uh, this person, I mean... She really said when she was going through undergrad, her entire family had to get to help her get through the school. But when she started our program, she said, I really felt like a fully independent adult. Yeah. Uh, She became a social worker, a fully independent adult that was able to get through the entire program basically without anyone's help. Wow. You know, that's a lot. Uh, Because a lot of people will talk about creating more access to education by taking this or that online. Access has to go across everyone including people with disabilities. In our case, we create access in a variety of other ways. You want to take your classes on your mobile device? We're there as well. That's access for us as well. We have full native mobile apps. You can watch your videos. You can watch all of your async content. You can get all of your notifications. Uh, We have a small pilot with Campus TV where you can do a lot of that stuff on TV. It jumps on your watch. And, you know, there's a podcast mode. And so we do everything to also work with your life to create time and access for you to achieve your goals. Last question before we get into lightning rounds. So when, you know, you have partners, like you said, from UC Berkeley to MIT, Harvard, you know, all sorts of universities. um, When people, when these students come to you, is it usually direct to to you, (laughs) pardon the pun, uh, or is it, through a partner who then like refers them in that particular course to the, to the platform? Our admission counselors are basically agents of universities. When they would call you, it would say USC on your caller ID. They get you, they help you to get you through admissions process. We never cold call anyone or anything crazy like that. All of the students inquire for information. 
So if you go to NYU and you look for some online degrees for NYU, you're going to find, for example, a lot of our program. Uh, same thing goes for Simmons. And as you mentioned, Harvard and MIT has lots of short courses with us. And all of those can be found by organic sites, as well as going directly to university sites. Uh, universities share their DNSs with us, kind of gives you the level of trust we have with them. Yeah, no kidding. And we run those websites for them and we generate prospects. And then we talk to those prospects to make sure that we find the right degree for them, that we find a degree at the right time for them when they're ready for it. And, you know, across our career curriculum continuum is what we sort of call variety of products that we create. It, 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 it is also important to show them that we have different products as well. You know, we, we definitely, our admissions, if you think about it, they help engage students for enrollment. So here's another good story. Maybe that will cap it off. Uh, again, in a pretty in, in, in the beginning, I had to figure out how admissions actually works on a school side because we all know it as students, you know, you fill out a really long application and then you wait X amount of weeks and then you get a package where you sign your life away kind of thing, you know, letter of enroll and all that stuff. And then you ship it back and then, then you get it. We were able using Salesforce and some very basic uh, proprietary code, we're able to build a completely online uh, admissions process that universities would use to admit students or reject them. It can be done on your phone. It can be done uh, in front of a machine. Uh, students can e-sign everything using EchoSign uh, and, you know, enroll themselves in for in as short as 48 hours. You know, this is where really technology uh, doesn't make a decision who gets in or not but we definitely can streamline, create a lot more access and scale it for universities. That's awesome. All right, let's get into the lightning round. These questions are fast and easy. Just like the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience, you can go to salesforce.com slash platform to learn more about Salesforce and the Salesforce Customer 360 platform. If you haven't checked it out, you know, We've done over 150 of these episodes. Just go check them out. They're awesome. We love Salesforce and you will too. Lightning round questions. James, are you ready? Yep. Number one, what app are you using on your phone that's the most fun? I would say Signal, but it's not that fun. But the conversations I can have in it are. What about favorite book or podcast that you've read or listened to recently? I really like Seth Godin's podcast, Akimbo. So good. I love it. It's so good. And he's sort of my whisperer in oh, general, yeah. I feel like. And the last book that I've been raving about is Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willing. Uh, so Jocko was, I believe, a commander of a Navy SEAL squad. And the book is sort of all written in every chapter is uh, a war story. And then when he came out of military, sorry, uh, Navy SEALs, uh, he became a consultant where he was helping managers and executives. Uh, lead their teams into for success, into action, and achieve success. And so every chapter is a little bit of a war story and what Navy SEALs techniques were used to deal with it. And then a similar story from business when he became a consultant and how using the same methodology that he learned in Navy SEALs and uh, in variety of different really scary war situations in how he was able to advise uh, managers and leading their teams. I think the book is fascinating and a lot of fun to read. What is your best advice for a first-time CTO? Well, a couple of things. Nothing is more permanent than temporary. Remember, when 
the little voice in your head tells you, look, we'll do it like this for now. If we ever get big, I'll have time to fix it. You will not. And you will at scale pay for it a thousand X. So remember, everything temporary is permanent. That would be one. And another one would be really discipline yourself to understand what hats you're wearing and take an inventory of those hats often to make sure that you're not putting on hats that you shouldn't be wearing within a company. And then when some hats become too big to wear, you hire the people to wear them because those hats turn into multiple hats themselves. And then those folks will have to hire people that work for them as well. And so don't hold on to those hats at a very last moment. Know when to delegate and really take an inventory at least weekly. What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? How do we, as sort of CTOs, stay sane uh, with constantly shifting ground with technology, constantly shifting landscapes, and you know, doing all of these robust and very complicated things at the same time as the rest of the world is only learning about the technologies that you're using? You know, how do we stay sane in a world where we have to sell plumbing that's inside of the walls to people that don't want to play for plumbing? So I think sanity of CTOs and variety of things that we do to sort of be able to deal with failures and successes and keep moving forward is something that I think is rarely asked. That's a great one. That might be one of the best ones we've had because that is the ultimate question. How do we, how do we stay sane? Well, this has been awesome. James, thanks so much. We really appreciate you coming on. Any final thoughts? This is a great podcast and I love that you're supporting Salesforce. Salesforce have been my spirit animal for a while as well. I would say my final thought would be for this mission podcast is to really for people to embrace their mission, achieve mastery in whatever mission you've chosen. I think it'll pay off in spades. I love it. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform. <laughs>